0: And welcome to the St podcast, this is episode one of season two and season two will be a collaboration between St Mungo's and Continuous. Continuous is another side project of mine, it's an online learning platform helping doctors and nurses all over the world access expert knowledge fairly and easily. Now, we recently launched the Pocketbook of Emergency Medicine, which is over 160 lectures on the core topics in emergency medicine from leading international experts. And we'll be playing some of those talks in season two, interviewing some of those speakers, as well as mixing with some of the more traditional Style St. Mungo's podcasts that you're familiar with. First up is Professor George Kovacs from Halifax in Canada, a well-recognized international airway expert, and his talk titled... Defining airway management success, I hope you enjoy the lecture.
1: George Kovach here speaking to you on a uh, midsummer afternoon from my office and i 'm going to talk about airway management success, so no disclosures or conflicts other than the fact that I live in a great part of the world. This is the East Coast of Canada and nova scotia blue dot is is Halifax, a city where I live. But these pictures are of my cottage that I built 40 years ago on the Medway River, a place of refuge for mind, body, and soul. I used to live on the uh, interweb on Twitter. and December 31st, 2020, I decided to leave all social media, personal decisions. Uh, Sometimes I miss it, but uh, rarely so. If I've got something to say, you'll uh, you'll, uh, find it on aimairway.ca. So airway management success. Most of us would think that uh this is area management success, right, so you know you, you got the tube in the right hole, you think uh, you're going to confirm it with waveform entitled c o two and and you 're going to be happy there's high fives you you got the tube, and that 's not an unreasonable thing to to think about and uh, especially in the context of of this, the metric that 's been used for successful airway management has been first-pass success. And what we need to understand is that this has been shown in every venue, whether it's emergency medicine, anesthesia, or critical care, pre-hospital, pediatrics, whatever it is, with increasing number of attempts, there's increasing associated morbidity and mortality. And so therefore, the, the reverse logic was that we should get it in first pass, and that's been the goal, and that's what we've defined as successful airway management. I'm going to challenge that a little bit, and we'll see how that goes over the next few minutes. This is a a study that was done in in San Diego back in the uh, mid-2000s. where they, they were looking at pre-hospital RSI in head-injured patients. And if you look at this patient, and they were objectively recording all this data, this particular patient began with SATs of 100%. During the intubation course, A, as you see here, their SATs dropped to under 80%. And subsequently, their CO2 dropped as low as under 20 now, they got the tube, and I'm sure, as would be the normal practice, people would say, you know, high fives, there was, uh, you know, a transient uh, episode of hypoxemia and that transient episode uh, of, of hyperventilation that occurred. But when you think of big picture in terms of what success is, these two events, right, these two events are additive, have at least doubled this patient's Mortality in a head injured patient. Now, you're not that that mortality is not going to be declared in the ED at that time, but when you follow these patients out, they do much worse because of these transient physiologic events. Nothing to do with placing the tube as you saw in the video before. The metric that has stood the test of time using conventional equipment has been an 84%, 84 to 85% first pass success. And this is large number of, of patients over, over a long period of time using conventional equipment, using a direct laryngoscope for the most part. And this was the metric that many people were held to as a standard is when you're viewing your ED success rate, you should be aiming for this uh, at least a first-pass success rate of 84%. What we've seen since then um, are significant changes in improved first-pass success, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. But let's give context. Let's give context to a case that all of us are now, unfortunately, very familiar with. COVID-19 status, unknown patient, increasing oxygen requirements is being transported to your facility. Their SATs are 86%, respiratory rate's 36, they're on an FIO2 of 100%. They're pulling off their flow-based CPAP mass and they're agitated. Now, you don't need an algorithm to tell you that this person is a, is a dangerous airway, is a challenge airway and that they are likely going to require intubation. It's very unlikely that other measures, even though they're successful in in, in other contexts, such as you know, the use of CPAP and and high flow nasal oxygen, this is not likely gonna work in this person. This person's likely gonna have to swallow a tube. All of us it doesn't matter what stage you're at. And if you, you say you're not, then I'm going to challenge you and say you're, you're, you're lying. As I refer to this as your psychological shock index. When I go into resuscitation, I've been doing this for over 30 years you know, my, my heart rate goes up. Now, my heart rate goes up in, in hopefully a positive way that sort of increases my state arousal to improve uh, my, my performance. But, but sometimes that, that psychological state, that increased heart rate can become dysfunctional. And I refer to this as your psychological shock index. Your psychological shock index is when your heart rate, I heart rate, is greater than P heart rate, your patient's heart rate. So a PSI greater than one um, can be a challenge, and you have to be aware of it, that you're not only managing your patient, but you're managing yourself. And there's been a lot of fear associated, certainly in the early uh, stages, a lot of fear surrounding airway management in in uh, uh, COVID-positive patients, a fear that that harm was going to come to not only our patient, but to ourselves and our, and our colleagues. And I'm going to uh, again say that the majority of us had a PSI greater than, than 1. This is a, a nice little study. It was in a large number of patients done out of a great group out of Brazil, and they were looking at their first pass success rate During COVID, using conventional equipment, and they had a first-pass success rate of 85%. Now, they had had episodes of hypoxemia and hypotension that were quite high, and probably higher than than what um, we're we're seeing these days with uh, you know COVID uh, positive patients, even COVID positive patients with respiratory failure because we've learned how to pre-oxygenate these patients and manage them beforehand and resuscitate them better um, a, a, as we've uh, gone through the learning cro- curve with uh, COVID over the past two years. So 85 percent—that's been the, the the baseline that that we we know and have lived with. But increasingly, we're seeing higher numbers. And many people will quote this—you uh, know—great study. There are a couple studies. One was a pre-hospital study out of Finland, and then the the JAMA the uh, the um, uh, study where they were looking at, at routine use of a bougie versus an endotracheal tube, a styletted endotracheal tube. A single center study. Um, done a, a few years ago by Driver at al and they had a 98% first pass success rate when they routinely use the bougie and I don't want to talk about the advantages of the bougie here in terms of success or not but I want to what I want to say here is that this is a potentially aspirational goal this data was objectively recorded. This wasn't self-reporting saying, yeah, I got the tube in first pass. This was independently recorded by observers. And this is an institution and, and programs that dedicate... A lot of time and energy to uh, airway management to get these high first pass success rates. And while our colleagues might criticize us, say, you know, we're not in the OR, you know, doing tons of tubes. And, uh, you know, uh, what are you, what are you thinking we're, 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 we're doing here? Again, aspirational high first pass success rate when you dedicate time, effort and good technique to airway management in the ED. Now in the same study the uh, original um, study done by Driver et al the first pass success rate without hypoxemia was 85% and and we at least need to record this so you know first pass success in itself doesn't mean anything if it's associated with significant impairment from a physiologic standpoint. So we, we need to look at this as a new metric. And I think it's out. It's time for us to abandon first pass success alone as a metric for judging uh, airway management success. So what do, what defines success and failure? And this is my take, and this is the rule of 90s. And yes, it's a convenient number, this is what we've been teaching is that we should aim for, in critically ill patients, first pass success rates of greater than 90%. And this is happening, it's achievable, it's uh, something that we should aspire to. In patients that do have a saturation already over 90%, we'd like to maintain that. We want to keep their SATS over 90%. In patients that have a systolic blood pressure already over 90, we want to maintain that blood pressure ideally over. 90. And the one people have poked me about is this, is that you want to do this in a timely manner. And I use 90 seconds as a timely manner. And yes, I use it because I'm using 90 here. But what I mean by oxygenate and re-oxygenate is you need to train to be successful, to have your difficult airway drill so you can successfully have a, a first pass uh, attempt in under forty five seconds, the vast majority of attempts in in patients that aren 't difficult will happen in under thirty seconds so aspiring to under forty five seconds is not unreasonable and but however, if that fails, what I want to be able to do is come out and and do my difficult ventilation drill face mask ventilation drill and do that in under 45 seconds so my difficult airway drill was involved you know I'm doing uh, mouth opening I'm doing head lift I'm doing ELM using a bougie I'm doing that in all in under 45 seconds if that fails I'm going to come out I'm going to put in an OPA do an aggressive jaw thrust um, with a two-hand hold and two-person technique and train to do that in under 90 seconds. And why 90 seconds? Because that's w- the amount of time it would take for, for a patient who's not properly pre-oxygenate to critically desaturate. So, rule of 90s first pass success under uh, 90, SPO2s maintain over 90, maintain your blood pressure over 90, and have a uh, oxygenate and reoxygenate your patient uh, combined approach in under 90 seconds. So, what what what's been happening? In in the out-of-the-OR setting, when I say out-of-the-OR setting, the majority of the time we're talking about in critical care venues, whether it's in ICUs or in the EDs. Uh, difficult attempts, meaning conventionally two or more uh, attempts or greater than two attempts, um, between 4 and 13%. And this is uh, looking at a review of fairly um, large cohorts of, of patients. Severe hypoxemia. And, and severe hypoxemia, and I think that this is a reasonable thing to look at. I mean, who really cares about a SAT of 87% that went from 90 to 87%? But critical hypoxemia, severe hypoxemia of under 80%, it occurs between 9 and 26% in critical care environments in the ED and in ICUs. And severe hypotension. Now, this is severe hypotension. Systolic blood pressures of under 65, not MAP under 65 severe systolic uh, severe hypotension systolic blood pressures of under 65 between 10 and 14% so sats severe hypoxemia 9 to 26% severe hypotension 10 to 14% and cardiac arrest within 30 minutes of intubation between 2 and 3% of which half of those don't get ROSC so when we think of of what's happening in the ED or in a critical care setting, um, when you're when you're intubating a a, a patient that that's really sick, um, we look at it in terms of badness now badness that happens in that in that room. This is a uh, highly quoted study done by uh, Risotto and and a great group of of, of authors, um, twenty nine countries. And they were they were looking at at uh, all kinds of things in terms of uh, uh, first pass success and and severe hypoxemia, severe hypotension, um, cardiac arrest, all the things we were just talking about. And there's this badness now, right? So those are those physiologic dips that happen. The, the most obvious thing, people tend not to say, oh, I remember George, he was intubating that person last night and their SATs dropped to 81% for 15 seconds. Or their blood pressure dropped to, you know, uh, systolic blood pressure dropped to 78% during that. They don't tend to remember those transient physiologic um, um, dips. What they, they tend to remember was, oh, George couldn't get the tube. Right. So the, those procedural failures, right? Or the real badness stuff like cardiac arrest. But what we need to appreciate of is the fact that a procedural failure. So not getting it in first attempt doesn't really matter. Right. As long as you're able to maintain physiologic homeostasis and those physiologic depths do matter here. And they translate not into badness that you see in the resuscitation room, they translate into badness down the line when you follow these patients, right? So increasing morbidity and mortality. And yes, it happens with increased number of attempts, but increased number of attempts are just surrogate markers for physiologic disturbances that get recognized at a later time. The message here, the message is that yes, you want to get it in, get your tube in, ideally in first pass success, but what you want to do is avoid these, these physiologic dips. That have significant patient outcome implications, and the way to avoid that is do your best to resuscitate before you intubate. It's really, really rare that I've got to do a crash intubate where I've got to intubate that patient now. I've got some time to take care of things, right? Whether it's dissociate them so that they'll they'll tolerate the, uh, my pre-oxygenation techniques in terms of you know giving them fluid or or blood or whatever they need or starting them on norepinephrine, doing these things beforehand are going to make a difference in terms of your patient outcomes. And the only real way to do that is to not just try to remember what I have to do, but you need to use some sort of resource supplement. This is the airway checklist that, that we use. It's got a lot of stuff on it. The stuff in red is meant to be the stuff that's either articulated or you have to do it takes 30 seconds to do this to look at this stuff and we tend to have failures because we we don't remember the little shit right we don't pay attention to that small stuff whether it's positioning whether it's you know having our plan whether it's uh, um, you know we've got used two sources of oxygenate to pre-oxygenate our patient whether we have started norepinephrine beforehand so pay attention to the little stuff and when you go back to that that study that I referred to in in Jama where they were they had uh, the incidence of of uh, cardiovascular instability was upwards of 40%. Now this is not the only reason but Only half of those uh, that were involved in the study had a protocol in place. We're using things such as a checklist, so using a bundle is 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 potentially helpful, and we need more data to support that. This is not an unreasonable uh, uh, contribution to this data set, and this was out of uh, this was out of Australia, and they were they were looking at in in a tertiary center pre-COVID. Now they had pretty high first-pass success rates of of close to 94%. And what happened post-COVID? Well actually their first pass success rates went up. Not statistically significantly, but they went up. Um, now people might say, well why why is that? And why was it the incidence that they had of, of hypoxemia and hypotension? It was higher than pre-COVID, but it certainly was lower than what was had been recorded by by other groups. You know, it was because COVID caused us to, to focus and, and, Concentrate on resuscitating our patients, it forced us to use checklists, to do deliberate practice, to employ algorithms, to get the right equipment to simulate and practice your procedures, practice with your team. And this is a positive legacy issue. And together it's these airway bundles that are making a difference in terms of patient outcomes. So remember the goal of airway management is to oxygenate, ventilate your patient, and maintain physiologic homeostasis, and that can be by any means and uh, again as a as a friend of mine uh, who's an intensivist in in florida says patients don't die from acute plastic deficiency syndrome right they don't die from the lack of a tube you know they, they die that we haven't paid attention to the details of maintaining that physiologic homeostasis airway management success let's pay attention to it let's define it differently more than just getting the tube in the in the right hole I'm going to close with this uh you know patient outcomes and patient safety it's not just about you know patient issues in terms of the classic difficult airway anatomy and physiology and you know, the ability of the patient to cooperate and whether we're going to do an RSI or not. It's about the environment. It's about the provider. You know, are you able to manage your psychological shock index? Are you able to gather the equipment, have the equipment, and gather the support that you need to look after this patient? And that's what we refer to collectively as the dangerous airway. And if you manage these things, you're going to have uh, improved provider safety and better patient outcomes. Thanks for your attention.
0: So many, many thanks to Professor George Kovacs for that wonderful talk. This and all talks on Continuous.com are free to watch for everyone in the world. There are low-cost premium extras, including CPD and CME certification, which is fairly priced in middle-income countries and always free in low-income countries. Plus, we donate back to global healthcare projects. To find out more and to discover hundreds more lectures in critical care, emergency medicine, sepsis, and many more topics, you can visit www.continulus.com. That's c-o-n-t-i-n-u-l-u-s.com. We hope you enjoyed this lecture.